News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, obviously, we're keeping a close eye on that whole weather situation out there today. It is very cold and very icy out there. So the roads are looking pretty clear. The main roads are, as you heard there in traffic, but the side roads in many communities still super, super icy. Uh, And so just be careful out there. Hopefully traffic will be a little less because it is the Friday. Some people probably working from home today. Uh, So we'll keep you posted on how that goes. But let me know what you see out there too, right? Simi at cknw.com. All right, right now we're going to talk about life, as in how much life is on earth. And when we're talking about life, we're talking about all of it, including all of those living cells that helped to make up early life. How early was that? Well, scientists now estimate that cells first came to exist almost 4 billion years ago. So totaling up, you know, life on earth, well, that is a challenge. Doesn't mean that people aren't going to try though, like Peter Crockford, Assistant Professor of Earth Sciences at Carleton University, who joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Is it even possible to calculate this? Uh, I would say not until quite recently. Uh, it's been a lot of hard work from a lot of geochemists, earth historians, biologists, uh, trying to reconstruct this biological history of the planet. And so uh, we're living in a really exciting time where we can really investigate our origins with more detail than was ever possible before. And so what are we doing then? Are we going backwards to just trace to the point where we can see those cells first came into being? Exactly. So we have estimates of when the first life came to be on the planet. And then we have what we call proxies. So this is maybe geochemical signals that we can find in the rock record that give us a sense of how much uh, primary production was on the planet, which is just uh, the synthesis of inorganic material to organic material. And we can sort of think of it in the same way as uh, the amount of food that humans consume is sort of a proxy for all the humans on the planet. And we can sort of do the same thing with the microbial world with some of these proxies in the geologic record. And so if we do that consistently through, uh, you know, three and a half billion year old rocks all the way up to the present, we can sort of reconstruct this history. It's like putting together, Peter, a giant jigsaw puzzle. Exactly, exactly. I don't even know where you would start. So so how far <laughs> along are we on this? Well, uh, to date, uh, we've got a number of tools at our disposal, uh, one of which that I uh, tend to use is looking at the oxygen isotopes and old salt deposits. But people have approached this from modeling perspectives uh, and a number of other approaches. And so uh, certainly the numbers that sort of we've come up with recently will be refined in the coming years, but at least we're able to put out some initial estimates, which is quite exciting. What are some of those initial estimates? Well, uh, so if we were to say, what has the biosphere actually accomplished? One way that we could measure that is just how much organic mater- how much organic material has been produced by life uh, since the origin of life. And the estimate we came up with is about 100 quintillion tons of carbon. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, basically, that's about 100 times the carbon budget of the earth, or if you just want a physical picture of that, that's basically if we converted the whole moon to carbon, that's about how much the biosphere has been able to uh, take in through primary production. It's pretty impressive. I was going to say, that's very visual. And thank you for describing (laughs) it in a way that we can all understand it and we can visualize it that way. So what do we do with this kind of information? Well, I think that it's really interesting to start to set up Earth as sort of a benchmark. So at the moment, we're discovering a whole bunch of exoplanets. You know, when around the time I was born, a lot of these were just a hypothesis. And now there's thousands and thousands of these worlds that uh, every new telescope that comes online, we're able to describe with a little bit more detail. Um, But it's interesting to compare uh, Earth to these uh, exoplanets. And now that we actually have numbers about what the biosphere has been able to accomplish, it sort of sets up Earth as a a nice place to compare. Uh, So it gets kind of interesting to think of like, if larger planets exist out there, water worlds and stuff, how might their biospheric or total amount of life they're able to house, how does that compare to the Earth's? So is this the kind of information, is this like a, a worldwide, is this a global project that many researchers are working on? 
Uh, to be honest, this was a, this is sort of a COVID project for me. Um, I was uh, doing my postdoctoral research at the Weizmann Institute uh, in Israel. And uh, once travel stopped, it was sort of putting together a lot of different estimates and uh, sort of finishing up a lot of my own work. But uh, I certainly wouldn't want to give the impression that I, I should take all the credit. It's um, a lot of different people are working on these problems. And uh, the group I was part of is just one of them. Right. And so the, it, to me, it feels like this is a, a library of information, Peter, that anybody can kind of tap into once the work is done. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so how far along would you say you're like, how much longer will this take? Uh, well, um, if we project the clock forward, so uh, one of the issues that we just are never, well, we don't have the technology to deal with now, but the sun is slowly getting brighter. So if we go back in time, maybe 3 billion years ago, the sun was only about 70% as bright as it is today. Uh, but as we move the clock forward, it's going to continue to get brighter. Now, one of the consequences of that is that it's going to increase climate change on the planet. And uh, one of the consequences of that is that things like CO2 are going to get drawn down to extremely low levels. And at that point, plants will die off. Uh, eventually the sun will continue to get brighter and the oceans are going to boil and then the microbial life will die off. And it's estimated that those sorts of events are going to happen in the next one to two billion years. So at the year, uh, we could say 7 billion 2024 or something like that, uh, we're going to basically be out of life on the planet. Um, and so you can multiply that forward by taking a look at how life was multiplied in history. Exactly, exactly. So we can sort of project the modern type biosphere forward until forests, say, die off. And then maybe we go back to uh, a time when we didn't have sort of a terrestrial biosphere, maybe around uh, a billion years ago. And that's going to basically look like the biosphere a billion years from now, interestingly enough. You know, and we can sort of get some crude estimates around this. Peter, when you describe it this way, I mean, it sounds fascinating to me. And I, and I do wonder, though, like, how, how come this hasn't been a, tried before? Uh, well, that's not entirely true. I mean, uh, people have attempted to uh, put numbers to some of these pieces of the puzzle over the past uh, uh, several decades. Um, what's really changed now is that we just have so many more tools at our disposal and ways to cross-validate these different things. And even setting dates for when different types of life uh, came to emerge and also proliferate in uh, the past. And so these are quite recent uh, discoveries that have come online in the uh, recent years. And so, uh, we're just sort of at a lucky time where we can sort of put all this together and come up with some of these uh, big numbers to estimate what the biosphere has really accomplished. Have you come across something that surprised you when you found it? Uh, a few things. I would say one of the most surprising things was that uh, when we think of mass extinctions, like the the asteroid uh, that killed the dinosaurs or um periods of intense volcanism that caused one of the biggest mass extinctions like 250 million years ago. When you take a step back and look at the whole record over maybe uh, over its entire history, these events really are just like a small blip and the biosphere just recovers. Uh, and maybe one can even make an argument that the stress induced by these events ultimately leads to innovation, which in the long term actually increases the amount of life on the planet. So that was sort of an interesting outcome of this work. This is really fascinating stuff. And Peter, and you're thinking, wow, look at I got started because of COVID. I needed something to do. It's really amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. That's Peter Crockford, assistant professor of earth sciences, Carleton University. What Peter's project is that he's trying to actually put a number on how much life has existed on earth in terms of living cells in the quintillions, as he told us, and really was not able to do that with the kind of computing power until recently. Uh, but it is a fascinating, fascinating project. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we think we've hit the trifecta this morning with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Is it possible, Vaughn? Have we? Well, we got snow, Surrey policing, and the fast ferries. What else wow. can we ask for? <laughs> right? <laughs> so let's start with the snow. I believe you told us just a few days ago it never snows in Victoria. 
Yes, I mean, I haven't been covering provincial politics for 40 years without having learned the art of clarifying the context of my remarks. What I meant to say to you was that it was not actually snowing at that moment outside my house. Was I not specific enough? I apologize. Could not begin to speak for the rest of the capital region or indeed discuss future events. So there you go. Oh, yes, it did snow bad. here. It snowed at my house yesterday in Victoria. Uh, believe it or not, the snow has all disappeared. And damned if I know where it went because it was cold last night. It was blowing snow around my house. But perhaps it's all blown off to some other more godforsaken <laughs> part of the capital region. Yeah. I know there's a lot of snow because uh, I've seen the online reports. Um, there's snow in Malahat. There's snow out towards Souk. Uh, worries about uh, getting around in the capital region today because uh, Victoria residents are no better at driving in the snow than anyone in Vancouver. That we might even be worse. Well, that's reassuring. Okay, let's do let's do the uh, Surrey Police Service issue too because th- th- this is the story <laughs> that just when we it's like the Godfather Three, right? Just when we think we're out, it pulls yeah. us back in. Yeah, no, and, and like The Godfather 3, I think it was a mistake to do a sequel. So uh, here we go. <laughs> Good one. Uh, here we go. So, uh, you know, has Brenda Luck finally gone too far? So Surrey, uh, the Surrey Police Service press conference yesterday said, we hired 10 new officers staffing up the force because by provincial edict, they are going to be the only police force in Surrey uh, before long. So they're staffing up and Surrey's refusing to pay them. So the union, to its credit, has stepped in paying these officers so we don't lose them. But I think there was understandable exasperation by Premier David Eby yesterday and Mike Farnworth. Look, you can disagree with some of what they've done here, but they're right. This crosses the line. It's one thing to pick a political fight with the provincial government and and take out billboards and criticize the government. And, you know, the New Democrats, as the Premier said, he's not happy with that, but that's, uh, that's politics. But uh, this crosses the line. Uh, this is a terribly shabby way to treat officers who, after all, want to serve the public in Surrey. And the union, to its credit, is paying them, uh, looking for some kind of statement from Surrey. So far, we've got uh, the uh, mayor's hired gun, Peter German, saying, well, uh, the Surrey Police Services is over budget. How would they we went ahead and hire these people anyway. How would we know that, though? Brenda well, Locke is... refuses to put the numbers out there, so yeah. this is impossible uh-huh. to verify. Yeah. So, uh, interesting you bring up the budget. So... Mike Farmer stepped in, got rid of the Surrey Police Board, and appointed an administrator, Mike Sayre. Sayre put together a budget, and he presented it to Surrey Council on November the 30th. Um, Near as I can tell, it's not been made public, and indeed it doesn't look like it's ever been leaked even, which surprises me. But anyway, there you go. Uh, The official word is that the administrator is giving... Surrey Council until March the 1st to get back on it, to suggest changes, to work it out. <clears throat> the province, uh, Provincial Director of Policing Services, Simi, has the power to impose the budget on Surrey come May 15th. But not surprisingly, the province would sooner not do that. They'd like to work it out. Uh, I haven't seen an update since December on what council is actually doing with the budget, if anything. But Peter German said yesterday, he said his reading of the situation is that Surrey Police Services are now, I don't know, $75 million over budget. Uh, Simi, if you've been following this one, and I know you have the numbers being thrown around out there in Surrey about what this is going to cost and how long it's going to take and all that. That's one of the biggest problems here. We do not have an independent audit yet of the budget numbers out there. And that's why it's very hard to say how much is this going to cost Surrey. The province says it's put up $150 million to ease the transition. The mayor says on her billboards, which ratepayers are paying for out there, 
Uh, now it'll be $464 million. So that's a bit of a gap. Uh, it sounds to me like a job for an independent auditor, but there isn't one available at the moment. Yeah, it's really hard to see what the mayor is talking about here without actually them putting out the numbers. Like they're just throwing yeah. numbers out there. And it seems like they're different every time they say them too. Uh, yes. Right? Yes. Like we yeah, haven't gotten any consistency on that front. Mm-hmm. No, so, you know, uh, in our business, we talk about the gift that keeps on giving uh, yeah. for us. Here we are talking about it again. I... You know, I don't envy Surrey ratepayers trying to make sense out of this, and I, I'm not gloating at their expense, but this is one festering political dispute, and lurking in the background is a sneaking suspicion that Brenda Locke is mainly trying to make sure that when the bills finally come in for this, Mike Farnworth and the New Democrats get stuck with the political fallout, not her. It's provincial election year. Who knows? She may be right, although I think she played her cards very badly treating would-be recruits or recruits to the Surrey Policing Service so shabbily. They should not be ground up in what is a political battle between two levels of government. We're chatting with Vaughn Palmer this morning. And Vaughn, I got to tell you, there's some stories I think, oh, they're gone for good and we'll never talk about them again. This this one I had put in that category until now we're talking about the fast ferries again. Yeah, the ghost ships of British Columbia, except they're in Egypt at the moment. So I check into my email yesterday and the first thing I get is an email from David Hahn, the former CEO of BC Ferries, directed to me and to Keith Baldry, who both covered the fast ferry story. And he says, in case you did not see, (laughs) and it's a Facebook posting, and what it says is, uh, hey, uh, the, the fast ferries are available, they're on the market, and you can pick up the three of them for a mere $15 million. Turns out they're tied up on the waterfront in Egypt, of all places. Uh, the Egyptian government is fed up with them and is thinking of scrapping them. And a North Vancouver shipbroker, Rob Arthurs, is saying, hey, you know, it'd be a shame if these ships were scrapped and thrown away because they still have a useful life. And so let's make an offer. He's been contracted to the Egyptian government to try to line up a buyer. Um, there's uh, The Facebook page has uh, pictures of the ships. Uh, looking at some of them, so, I mean, they, they look remarkably like they used to when we toured them and they were put into service. So it's been 30 years since Glenn Clark as premier announced the project. It's been 25 years since the project failed and the ships were first put up for sale here in British Columbia. But, uh, hey, you can pick them up for $15 million. Such a deal. They cost BC taxpayers $460 million in 1990 dollars. So there you go. What a bargain. I have been looking at the pictures of them. And you're right. They do seem like a bit of a time capsule. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that sort of. I, I still have one of my favorite souvenirs, actually, which was given to me by none other than John Horgan, is, um, you know, the pirate pack thing on BC ferries? Of course. Well, they they had a fast ferries fold it together fast ferry that was going to be on sale to children on the fast ferries. And when they decided to dump the fast ferries, the government ended up with a lot of fast ferry regalia, fast ferry hats and fast ferry t-shirts and fast ferry fold it together, build your own fast ferry out of cardboard. And Horgan handed those out to journalists as he left Victoria with the NDP government at the, uh, well, what, 2001. And I still treasure that as a souvenir, um, (laughs) along with my jar of the sediment bedrock underneath the Site C dam. I mean, you need to keep these things uh, for historical purposes. And maybe, maybe, Simi, here's a segue. Maybe that's what should happen with the fast ferries, you know? Uh, I mean, the Provincial Museum needs a build-over, and you could put one of them beside the mammoth or in the front courtyard. Uh, After all, you know, British Columbians would certainly want to see one. It's sobering to think that these artifacts of our political history would be gone forever, Sent to the scrapyard. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> I can't I'll imagine you, some people might not want to be hearing about these oh, fast ferries. Man. 
Yeah, uh, I don't think uh, the chair of the board at BC Ferries, Joy McPhail, will be taking calls on this possibility today. Uh, she was the cabinet minister in the NDP government who inherited this mess under Premier Ujjal Dosanjh, so two premiers after Glenn Clark. And she was the one who had to face up to the fact that they weren't working for BC Waters. Uh, only two were in service. The third one had never been put into service. And she was the one who bit the bullet and said, all right, we're going to get rid of them. Uh, she called for bids on them. Uh, the deal didn't close while the NDP were in office. The Liberals, uh, the deal didn't work out. The Liberals put them up for auction. The company that actually built them here in BC, the Washington Group, bought them for $20 million. They thought of trying to make them work in BC. They concluded they wouldn't work. Eventually ended up in the hands of a company in one of the United Arab Emirates. They thought of trying to put them into service in the Middle East. That didn't work. Uh, they're tied up on the Egyptian waterfront. Uh, apparently, they would make nifty um, luxury yachts if you were willing to spend the money to you know, clean out the car decks and put everything in. Whether or not there are any Russian oligarchs out there interested <laughs> in that transaction, uh, the aluminum hulls and so forth, and the catamarans, I guess we'll see, or maybe the next time you and I do this story, it will be about the BC ferries, the fast ferries going to the scrapyard. Finally. Uh, you know, Who knows they... what all that aluminum would fetch? Maybe they'll end up being made into beer cans. <laughs> you know, I get that they weren't worthwhile as ships, but in terms of the political value of the fast ferries, Vaughn, I would say they far out, out <laughs> exceeded what so, the price tag is. Yeah, you know, so after they're taken out of service here and then put up for auction, they were tied up on the North Vancouver waterfront. And I recall at least two provincial elections whereby an amazing coincidence, Gordon Campbell gave us a boat tour of the Vancouver Harbor for some mysterious reason, and you would sail by the fast ferries as a reminder Hilarious. of the previous government's <laughs> legacy. So, uh, you know, yes, they have, they have certainly delivered the goods in, uh, to people like me. Uh, and uh, they have also delivered the goods to uh, government critics. And as you say, the amazing thing is that they are still around. Yeah. Uh, maybe the NDP should have bought them for $15 million and when scrapped they were on them. the market so and sent them to the scrap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's exactly what they should have done. Vaughn, thank you. Bye bye. That is Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. This is Mornings with Simi. It's time for us to take a look at what has been happening in the United States over the past week. Reggie Giacchini joins us now, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Uh, let's start with these airstrikes that have happened against these rebel targets in Yemen. What is this all about? So this is in response to uh, the situation uh, that is underway in the Red Sea, where these Houthi rebels have been boarding vessels, making it impossible for maritime traffic uh, to navigate through. That includes commercial shipping vessels. We've heard from the United States uh, and other countries uh, over the last several weeks that this uh, that this ultimately needs to stop. We've heard threats coming from uh, the White House, from the Pentagon, that they would do something about this. Um, and in recent weeks, we've seen the United States and a bunch uh, of coalition countries kind of set up um, a, a multi-naval force uh, in the region, which didn't have any kind of impact uh, on slowing the rebels down. So ultimately, it, it resulted in this strike last night carried out by the U.S., the U.K., with help from uh, Canada and Bahrain and Australia. 16 targets, uh, 16 locations, rather, a number uh, of targets were struck, according to the Pentagon. The question now, is this going to result in some kind of res response either from Houthi rebels or possibly from Iran or one of its other proxies in the region. Okay. Is there more to come? Like, do we know, is this a continuing effort they're making there? Well, we know that there's at least nothing else planned, but we didn't know there was anything planned until late yesterday afternoon when there started to become rumor that a statement was coming from the White House about strikes. So we understand that at least for now, no additional strikes uh, are underway. But we also know that the United States and this coalition isn't simply going to walk away um, and, and allow for continued threats uh, in the Red Sea. So this is a matter of wait and see. The second issue here, 
Simi, is that the Pentagon this morning says this has nothing to do with the Israel-Hamas conflict. The Houthis say that this is in direct response to what is happening inside Gaza. So you have a situation now with multiple different interpretations, and that is the reason that there's a risk here for this to become a potentially wider conflict. Okay, so there's that going on. Also wanted to catch up on the things that have happened in the, in the different kind of trials of former President Donald Trump in the past week. Yeah, for sure. Uh, So on Tuesday, we saw him in court uh, at the federal uh, appeals court for the District of Columbia, ultimately trying to argue that he has blanket presidential immunity from when he was in office and that federal cases against him need to be dropped because he has some kind of executive shield. It's something that's never been tested before in this country because there's never been a president in this situation. But ultimately, what Trump is trying to do is say, look, what happened after uh, the loss uh, of his election in 2020 uh, and the, the quote unquote election audit that he was carrying out was all a part and parcel of his job as president. The government is coming out saying, no, that has nothing to do with the job of a president. You are essentially trying to overturn your loss. Um, and, and so we're going to find out whether or not judges believe that he has immunity or if he doesn't have immunity. This potentially could go to the Supreme Court, but they may just send it back to the lower court. So there's going to be some big ramifications here. Without immunity, president, presidents in the future may be hesitant to do things in office office with too much immunity, they may do too many things in office. Right. So could this appeals court then potentially spell out when there is presidential immunity and when there isn't? Yeah. So there's we're likely going to get some kind of possibly narrow ruling from this three judge panel. And then the losing side is going to take it to the Supreme Court. Likely. The question is, what is the immunity rules going to look like? What are they going to look like? How are they going to be rewritten? And that's going to be something that not only impacts Donald Trump, because if immunity is not there, the court cases can continue. That may impact his ability to run. Uh, but changing immunity rules is going to have a long term political impact on this country. So so Donald Trump here has found himself at the at the kind of core of a massive political question. OK, and that's just one of the trials, right? Absolutely. Number two uh, was in New York City. Closing arguments came and went yesterday in his uh, civil bank fraud trial brought by the state of New York. Uh, essentially, the attorney general is saying that Trump over many years and decades overinflated his net worth and his asset valuation to secure better terms on loans. Trump says, no, we didn't do anything wrong, but also with a caveat, if we did something wrong, it was somebody else's fault, like the accountants. Um, the state of New York is trying to, to trying to get more than $300 million out of the Trump organization and bar it from ever working in New York again. So this would be a huge hit to this financial empire that Trump has built. He claims he did nothing wrong. He said that yesterday. He addressed the judge. He was eventually shut down because he went into a bit of a campaign speech. But again, this is not going to have an impact on his ability to run for president, but it could have a huge impact on just the Trump name and Trump legacy in the business world. OK, and speaking of that, the presidential election, he was also still campaigning this week. There were a couple of uh, debates that happened. Well, there were a couple of debates that happened. He didn't take part in the main debate. He decided to do his own town hall on Fox News, right. where he decided to get in into the dictator comment again and said yes that he would be a dictator again on day one uh you know throwing a bit of 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 questions into the air about what the purpose of saying that is and how it may not work in his favor on the other side nikki haley and ron DeSantis went at it with each other at the cnn debate uh they spent much of the time focused on attacking each other not attacking donald trump not really talking about domestic policy issues and at the same time now that we have this situation underway in the red sea you don't have candidates that are talking to each other about foreign policy matters, leaving some voters unaware of where the candidates actually stand on matters that, you know, extend beyond the U.S. borders. So, you know, it's a really insular fight right now about trying to secure Iowa, maybe New Hampshire as well. Um, But but there's a lot that we don't know about where any of these candidates actually stand. Right. We saw Chris Christie drop out of the race this week. And what's been going on with Ron DeSantis? Well, I mean, well, there's a couple of things going on with Ron DeSantis. Number one, uh, the, the, the caucus in Iowa is about to take place under blizzard conditions and record low temperatures. And he keeps saying that he forgot his winter jacket um, in Florida and that someone has to bring that to him. Uh, so, <laughs> that's so really going to endear him to Iowans, I'm thinking. <laughs> that, that's what's going to happen with Ron DeSantis. Number two, I mean, if we're talking of the election uh, with Ron DeSantis, we don't know what's going to happen if he loses the race on Monday or if he comes in a distant second to Donald Trump because he spent all of his time and money in this state, a loss there could potentially spell the end of the DeSantis campaign. 
back in Florida, a Ron DeSantis policy that was put in place uh, having to do with books and sexual content uh, and the way that that may impact children. Florida has actually pulled the dictionary from one uh, school district because it contains words having to do with sex and reproduction. I'm sorry, the dictionary, uh, Reggie? And encyclopedias. Both of them have been pulled from a school district. That district has now been sued uh, because these are critical books that, that extend beyond sex and, and sex education. Okay, that's a new one. That <laughs> I mean, this is this is Florida. This is part and parcel of why Ron DeSantis may be struggling elsewhere around the country, because what happens in Florida may not reflect what's going on in other states. And if Ron DeSantis can't find himself close to the first spot in Iowa, these things that are happening in Florida may resonate outwards and other states may or other voters may say, we maybe don't need that in our state. That may be going a little too far. So again, Watch what happens in Florida. Watch what happens with DeSantis. This could be the end for for his campaign. And is that this week? The Iowa caucus is on Monday, okay. uh, and we should have r- results of it Monday night I- into Tuesday morning, and that's going to frame up what happens in uh, in New Hampshire uh, towards the end of January. All right. Thank you for that, Reggie. Thank you. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News. Next week, shaping up to be very, very interesting in that U.S. presidential race. This is Mornings with Simi. There are a lot of ways that we can be scammed these days, but what you really don't want is to be scammed when you go to the grocery store. But sadly, it happens. Food fraud is when labels misrepresents what is in the food that you're buying, right? It can be a big business, even involving organized crime. So how do you protect yourself? Well, there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes on this by companies like Purity IQ, which helps food companies detect food fraud. Delio De Leonardis is the CEO and co-founder of Purity IQ and joins us now to talk about that. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Timmy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. How would you describe your work? Uh, well, first of all, it's very exciting and uh, and it is very fulfilling. Um, we created Purity IQ in, in 2019 uh, for partners who really have no science background, but we've hired the science background. We wanted to make a difference. Uh, whatever little bit we could do, and it sounds lofty, but uh, if we could take a bite out of uh, adulteration, that's what we would do. But what we specialize in is specifically authenticity services. And I think that that's what's important. We don't do anything else. And that's um, really what sets us apart from most labs. It's our singular focus. So we don't do any other quality assurance testing, uh, like you know testing for heavy metals or pesticides. Our clients still use their labs for that testing, but they come to us for authenticity testing. And we define that by saying we verify and validate the identity of the product. So is the ingredient you're expecting to find in the product really there? Then the purity of it, is there anything else in there that shouldn't be? Right. And consistency. So it's just not a one-time verification. Can you produce your product in this authentic way time and time again? Okay, so why is this needed then, Delia? Maybe you can tell me about how, I know you worked in the grocery kind of store industry before. What were you seeing? What are grocery stores grappling with out there? Well, interesting enough, and you're right, my background was all in in retail in Canada. And um, for the last uh, several years, I was the vice president of private label for a major uh, Canadian retailer. And when you're looking at private labels specifically, I mean, it's your brand on the label. And it's that real risk if something happens to your brand. And, um, you know, it's, it, brand is so important and, and brand protection and, and mitigating any risk. And so we, we were seeing that there were a lot of issues with, with fraud and what could we do to try to mitigate that. And it's very difficult, which is why we created a company, because at the end of the day, testing is really the number one way to resolve the issue. What kind of fraud, though? Like, what kind of ingredients can possibly be misrepresented that that it's hard to track them and find out? Oh, God, name it. (laughs) Name it and they will come. Um, Often they're not harmful to people. Um, You know, this is, it's, it's, economically motivated, as you can imagine. Uh, and it's been around forever. Right? You know, just anecdotally, the the first documented cases of food fraud date back to ancient Greece and ancient Italy, right? And those are just the documented cases. So who knows how far back it really goes. But it, it can just be things like sugar, uh, water. It's anything to dilute the product 
or substitute something cheaper. But at the end of the day, if something is undeclared on the label, it could be a food safety issue if you're allergic to it. So that's where even though people say, well, you know, it's not that bad because they're just diluting it. Well, if if they're it with something that is dangerous to you, that's a food safety risk. So I was thinking of things like olive oil. I know it's hard to make sure that what you're getting is actually olive oil, but I understand spices can be quite challenging too. Yeah, spices is a huge one because it's powder. And the minute you've got anything that's powder, it's hard to know what's in there. Um, Botanical supplements as well. You know, people picking echinacea and elderberry and all. It's it's powders, it's extracts. And so you really don't know what you're getting. We've come across uh, turmeric, which is, you know, as you know, is hot. It's everybody wants to, to take turmeric. So popular, yes. Yeah, very po- The minute anything is popular and in high demand, it's at risk of adulteration. That's just, that's what happens. But we have found um, metanol yellow in turmeric. And the actual name is toxic metanol yellow, which, you know, sounds so appetizing. But it's used because it mimics the color of turmeric. So you don't know you're actually getting turmeric. You could be getting this filler that they've dyed yellow. Yes, exactly. That causes the, the product to look like the same thing. Yeah. And that's, that happens anything really that you think of things that are really uh, expensive or not even expensive, but, you know, paprika and um, cayenne pepper. There's things like Sudan red that's used instead of putting pure cayenne pepper. Uh, they're, they're just trying to make more money. What about whole peppercorns? I understand this is also challenging sometimes because you'd think, well, no, how can you possibly switch out whole peppercorns? Well, and that's interesting because uh, there's a product that looks and, uh, you know, smells like peppercorns. It's papaya seeds. And so there are some using papaya seeds mixed in with peppercorns. And again, just passing those off and it's cheaper. Right. And so do grocery stores have to guard against this all the time? Like buying something that, I don't know, that seems a little too cheap for that crate of peppercorns. Well, and that's exactly it. It's when you start to think that, you know, something doesn't seem right. Um, A lot of our clients are actually manufacturers uh, of products who aren't completely vertically integrated. They have to get their ingredients from somebody else. And, And because of all of the supply chain issues we've had with, especially because of COVID, you know, there's been a scarcity of raw materials. They're having to get ingredients from new suppliers, people they haven't dealt with in the past. And this is where they're hoping, you know, that what they're getting is what they ordered. And this is where the issue really arises. It's, it's this right. supply issue that have caused a lot of the problems. So fascinating. Thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Love- and I just say one thing that we've, we've uh, you know, we aren't doing uh, any business directly with, with uh, the public. However, I would tell your listeners to pay attention to their favorite products. And what the brand owner is doing to assure you that what's on the label is actually in the product. That's that, good. That you know, would be the call to action for consumers. Right. That is good advice. Thank you so much for that. That's Delia De Leonardis, the CEO and co-founder of Purity IQ, talking about food fraud, all the work that's being done there behind the scenes to make sure that what you're buying is actually what you think it is. This is Mornings with Simi. It is hard enough for just about anyone to find housing these days, but for families, for those with children and youth, it is even more challenging. That's one of the big items that was identified in a new report from the First Call Child and Youth Advocacy Society. Adrian Montani is the executive director and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Timmy. Now, can you tell me, give me an idea of what it is that you looked at in this report. Well, uh, we this was we heard from families for a long time that there were big barriers to securing housing and that the cost of appropriate housing was really unaffordable for many families. So we were lucky to get some funding from the Law Foundation to do a research report. And we reached out to about 250 families uh, and 163 service providers that all provided us with information and through focus groups and surveys and stuff. And what we heard was that the main barriers to finding and keeping housing was unaffordability, not surprising, uh, but also a lot about discrimination in the private rental market, uh, overcrowding due to the lack of larger units, long waiting lists for subsidized housing. So that was, and I'll just start with an astounding 40% of the parents in our research reported that they were denied rental housing because they had children or they had too many children or the ages of their children. People didn't, landlords didn't want young children or teenagers. So we were um, 
really that that was a surprise to us the, the volume of discrimination we discovered okay so that that's the kind of discrimination you're talking about then is it as soon as a landlord saw families they thought mm, no don't want to do this yeah and quite openly and it's uh, there's supposed to be there's very weak legal protection against that kind of discrimination in the private rental market so the human bc human rights code doesn't prohibit uh, discrimination in tenancy against people under the age of 19. There's supposed to be protections against discrimination on the basis of family status, but in the private rental market with very low vacancy rates, landlords rarely suffer any consequences for openly discriminating against families with children. And families who are struggling to secure housing in a very competitive rental market are very unlikely to make a human rights complaint. It's just a very long process, and some don't even know it exists. Yeah, I was going to say, do the, is there a process? Are there rights that are protected? Like, if people were to pursue Sue it. Are those rights there? Yes. In our report, we found some case law. Uh, very little, though, and not surprising because this is a long process. Usually, takes years, and so it, there are. It, you can eventually get some redress, but after years of following a, a human rights complaint, you might get, you know, maybe five thousand dollars or something in compensation. In, but in the meantime, you're really looking for for housing for your family, and that's the priority. So, and some of your your listeners may have heard of that family who were told their rent would increase by six right. months when their first baby was born. Well, that's an example of, of discrimination that is still legal. Like you, and that was in their rental agreement, unfortunately. And um, and so that's the kind of thing, again, we'd like government to, to address. We think that's discriminatory against children. Yeah. What are the fixes here then, Adrian? Well, I think uh, we have a number of recommendations in the report uh, that uh, big big ones like build a whole bunch more subsidized and or lo- low cost housing, affordable housing, and those that takes time. And we know government's working on it, but we really need to ramp that up. Regulate uh, private landlords. We have some suggestions in there around that. We look to Scotland and some other places where they have landlord registries with some criteria, and you can not be registered if you if you breach uh, laws. One of the other legal recommendations we've made is that uh, the Residential Tenancy Act that, that the residential uh, um, tenancy uh, branch be allowed to apply the human rights code. It's, if someone comes and says, I've been denied, I've been being evicted because of, of something breaking the rules on, on tenancy, that can be acted on by the residential tenancy branch. They can mediate that or, or make a decision. But if they come and say, they, they, because I had kids or because the landlord will deny that, and that's a human rights issue, and that has to go to the human, a human rights complaint, and that can't be handled by the residential tenancy branch. And we looked, and that can be changed so that the residential tenancy branch could actually apply the human rights code for right. their decisions. Can it be streamlined? Then, can it be streamlined yeah. as well? I'm wondering because if you've got children and you're trying to find a place to rent, yeah. you may not have the time to go through this process, right? You've got to find oh, something. Exactly, exactly. And and then uh, for those who are um, waiting, some of the other suggestions for those who are waiting for housing on, on for subsidized housing, uh, besides, of course, we need to build more stock, but we can also, uh, we've asked them to amend the, the placement decisions that, that are made so that um, when, you know, we give an example in the report of a family who, uh, a single mom with two kids who has her aunt living with her. And because the mom has a disability, she can only work part time. Her aunt is a crucial part of her family support and support child care and supporting with raising her children. But she was denied housing at B- through BC Housing because she wasn't just a mom and kids. So that, that type of uh, family composition, we need to amend the rules so that they can place families, extended families or families that uh, are um, have you know maybe a grandmother living with them so they can support families, that, especially single parents. That seems so rigid, Adrian, that they there's no flexibility for them to be able to say, yes, we see that's working for you. Okay, let's get you some housing. Exactly. Exactly. So, and that's the, so. It's that inflexibility, uh, and that's the kind of thing that could be done quickly because those are policy changes. It doesn't require legislation. It just requires government to say we're going to authorize uh, BC Housing and other nonprofit housing providers to be more flexible in how they place families in these units. Okay. And also, build larger units for bigger families would be helpful. Too. Yeah, there's that too. Uh, so, what what has the reaction been like to this? Is is there hope that this might get done? Some of these policy changes. Well, we'll see. Um, I, I heard the housing minister react to that story about the rent increase for for the family who's about to have a child and probably already has a child. Um, I hope we'll wait and see what he does. We have sent this report to the housing minister, to the premier, and 
ministers, the Attorney General, for the, the human rights uh, code changes we'd like to see. And we've asked for meetings with them. So we're waiting to hear back uh, and see uh, if we can bring this to them. And we want others to also use this as advocacy as they work with families who, who are facing these problems to bring it to the attention of their elected representatives. Is this the first time that this particular type of report has been done, Adrian, or is this like an update that you've done regularly? No, this is the first time we've done this particular deep dive into housing as an issue. We do the child poverty, publish the child poverty report card every year. We'll be publishing that soon this year, too. But the uh, this is the first time we, we, thanks to the Law Foundation funding, we were able to really dive into reaching out to families and service providers around the province to hear what was going on and to hear their recommendations. All right. So interesting. I hope something gets done about that. I look forward to the update. Adrian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Cindy. That's Adrian Montani, who's the executive director of First Call. They came out with this report. It's called A Failure to Protect the Denial of Children's Right to Housing in British Columbia. And what it's showing is that we know it's tough to get housing, that it can be even tougher for families or, you know, moms, single parents who have children or youth living with them. It's even more challenging because there are no strong protections to help them, you know, find that housing, make sure it's suitable, or even if a landlord decides that oh, I don't want to rent to kids, I don't want to rent to a family, what is the, the, the protection that they have against that? If you want to weigh in, if you've got a story to tell on that, I can kind of imagine how hard this is to find uh, rent for families these days, but simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, guess what? There is more to talk about this morning on the whole Surrey policing story, because according to the Surrey Police Service Union, there are 10 new recruits for the police service that aren't being paid their salary because the city of Surrey has refused to pay them that salary. So the union has stepped in, they said, to make those payments. But this is just yet another kind of salvo here in this tit-for-tat battle that's been going back and forth between the Surrey RCMP and Surrey Police Service discussion with the city of Surrey. So we're going to get an update on the situation now. Mike Farnworth joins us, BC's Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure. Have you had a chance to talk to the city of Surrey about this situation? Uh, my uh, my ministry has been in uh, is being in contact uh, with the city of Surrey on this particular situation, which, quite frankly, is just nothing more than I think uh, vindictive obstructionism, to put it bluntly. Um, you know, I, I get the city of Surrey doesn't like my decision, but you don't take it out on uh, hardworking police officers who want to serve their community are excited about doing so. And um, I can tell you that those police officers are going to be paid. And I'm uh, really excited that uh, they're joining the Surrey Police Service. And on behalf of the, the province, I want to welcome them. So what was the city of Surrey's response to this? Why are they doing this? Um, the city of Surrey has been obstructionist um, over the last year um, on the issue of the tran- on the transition to the Surrey Police Service. It is the law of the the province of British Columbia in legislation that the city will transition to the Surrey Police Service and they need to get on with it. Um, Everybody's been working hard on this. Uh, We've got uh, new recruits joining um, and uh, the transition is, is in progress and they need to stop the obstructionism and they need to understand that sticking your head in the sand uh, isn't going to accomplish anything. Right. Now, they're claiming Peter German, who is the, the city of Surrey's representative on this, they say that, well, the SPS is way over budget and they, they can't afford this. They're not going to do this. What do you say to that? Well, first off, I find that uh, a bit uh, uh, hard to, to take, given the fact that at the last third quarter financials for the city of Surrey, they've actually underspent their police budget. Uh, they have north of $80 million sitting in a police uh, transition reserve fund. Uh, so to say that they don't have the money, uh, frankly, is, uh, uh, you know, I have, I have a real problem with that. Uh, they know the transition is underway. They know that, uh, that uh, uh, Surrey police officers uh, will be being hired. They know that they are moving to a Surrey uh, police service and transition away from the RCMP. They need to get on with it and stop playing games. What tools do you have? What tools does the provincial government have at this point, though, to, to deal with the situation, given this latest twist? Uh, there's a number of, of tools that the province has. The director of police services will be in, in contact uh, with the city of Surrey 
Uh, there were changes made in terms of legislation earlier this year uh, that expand the, uh, the powers of the Director of Police Services within my ministry. Um, the legislation also made it clear that the uh, Surrey Police Service will be the uh, police agency that polices Surrey. All those things are in place. It is the law of the province of British Columbia, and the city of Surrey is not above the law. They have to follow it. What kind of tools then? What can the Director of Police Services do? Uh, the Director of Police Services can uh, issue um, uh, a directive, an order that they must uh, um, do certain things. They can look at uh, a budget, for example, and say uh, make a decision uh, around that that uh, has to be followed by the uh, by the city of Surrey. Um, they are the, the so there are significant powers there. Um, what what we need to understand, what the city needs to understand, is the transition is going ahead. Uh, it has already been significantly underway. Uh, the administrator, uh, in terms of the board, has submitted a budget to the city of Surrey uh, and that uh, uh, they need to get on with things. Are those legal orders then that if the if the director of policing services says this must be complied with? Like, is the, that those 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 the, the orders from the director of police services must be complied with? Okay, so then what if they just say no? Because it seems like every time we've talked to you about this, it's been like this. They must do this. They don't do it. And uh, every single time we get, uh, we manage to, uh, to push through it. Um, this, uh, the transition, as I said, is underway, and we're fully aware that the city of Surrey is being obstructionist. That's exactly what they're doing. But I think what's really particularly, I think, appalling in this case is the vindictiveness that is being shown is being taken out on individual uh, police officers who want nothing more than to serve their community at a time when communities such as Surrey are facing real challenges um, in, a, in a number of areas uh, around uh, public safety, and they want to do a job. And quite frankly, I would think that the city of Surrey would want to welcome them uh, in the same way that, uh, that we're welcoming them uh, to the Surrey Police Service uh, to be able to do the work that, that they want to do. Are you concerned at all that this would make any, and it's hard to recruit for any police force these days, but this would make potential recruits say, you know what, I am staying as far away from that as possible? I think the message that we're sending out is that uh, if you come and work for the city of police, uh, the Surrey Police Service, you don't have to worry. You will be paid. Uh, you're going to get paid. Uh, it's a great opportunity to be part of a, of a, of a new police force um, that uh, I think has an exciting future ahead of it. Um, it's moving forward. Uh, it's in the, uh, the law of British Columbia, and I have every confidence uh, that, uh, that uh, it will be going uh, ahead in the way that it's supposed to, uh, with new recruits wanting to, to serve their community. Uh, and that's where these recruits are from, by and large, is from the city of Surrey. That's where they want to spend their career. That's what they, want, that's what they signed up for, uh, to work and, and, and help keep their community safe. And I'm looking forward to them having uh, successful careers there. Well, thank you for your time this morning. My pleasure. Appreciate that. Mike Farnworth, BC's Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General. I'm sure at some point we'll be talking to him again about what the next turn of events is in this situation. It does seem like every time we do talk to him, he says, this is it. This is what's happening. This is what we're going to do. And then Surrey throws another wrench in the plan. So we'll find out. City of Surrey hasn't said much other than, oh, well, it was over budget. That's why we didn't pay them. But a lot of pressure on it this time around. There will be more to talk about, I'm sure. Found a way in, Simi at cknw.com.